Lord, we recognize you as the way maker. Lord, where there seemed to be no way in our lives, Lord, you provided not just one step, not just two steps, Lord, but like a whole path forward for us to follow you, God, out of our whole, out of our situation. And so, Lord, we celebrate. We thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts, God, from the bottom of my heart, God, for providing, Lord, what I could not have done on my own, Lord, for giving me direction, for showing me, Lord, in the way I should walk. And so, Lord, we celebrate and we thank you. And, Lord, we thank you for your great grace. In your name, Jesus, bless this next portion of our service, which is so precious to us, Lord, precious to you. Thank you for your church, Lord, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. And uh, this is a wonderful day for them. Not only is Caleb baptized, they, their daughter, Anna Kate, we're going to dedicate her to the Lord. So if you guys would come, bring the rest of the family up. You know, um, whatever we hold on to, it's our responsibility. But whatever we dedicate to the Lord, he takes responsibility for it. And Joseph and Mary brought their son to the Lord's house to dedicate him to the purposes of God. And so I want to ask Aaron and Katie two questions. As you bring Mary Kate before your church family, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yes. And will you raise her in such a way? to walk with the Lord, to love the Lord, and to love the Scriptures so she will have the greatest chance to serve her Savior. Will you do that? Okay, may I hold her? And would you hold the microphone while I hold her just for a second? I'm going to switch around here. Stretch your hand out to this beautiful one. Father, we thank you that every child comes from your heart. And Anna Kate has a calling on her life. And I pray, Father, for your spirit to fill her at a young age. I pray she'd hear your voice. She would love the scriptures and she would be a devoted woman of prayer. Father, build this family and use this young lady. And most important, build the kingdom of God through Anna Kate's life. We dedicate her to you and your purposes in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you introduce your family, please? Yes, I'd be glad to. So my name's Aaron. It's my beautiful wife, Katie. This is Caleb. My dad, Mark. I got it. And Jan. This is Zachariah, my son. And then this is his cousin, Carson. They're twins. You'll figure that out in a moment. This is Harrison and Lila, my sister-in-law, Elise, and my brother, Sammy, their daughter, Nora, Katie's mom, Terry, Katie's stepdad, Steve, and then our sister-in-law, Kelsey, and Katie's stepbrother, Tyler, and then Wyatt. And here we are. Thank you so much. Church is growing, man. <sighs> yeah. Now, um, I've got a couple quick announcements for you. Um, the 40 days of prayer has taken off, as you well know. Uh, we've got our Seek uh, God for the City books available uh, at the desk out front. Um, and, of course, you can... Check in on our Facebook. We've got all the uh, prayer reminders going off there. And then I just want to make this quick announcement that on Tuesdays, uh, this, this coming Tuesday, February 23rd at 7 p.m., we're going to uh, restart our prayer meetings in the worship center here, 7 p.m. this coming Tuesday. And also, uh, we announced it last week, the Minute to Win It event that we're going to have Saturday, February 27th. 
uh, from 4 to 8 p.m. We're going to play some fun games, some silly games. Some of us like to be sillier than others. I get that. But even you serious folks can show up and still have a good time. You know who you are. Also, I wanted to make a, a quick point and, and remind you or point out that we had this box in the lobby. It's labeled Caleb Treesh, and that's a keepsake box for uh, Caleb who just got baptized. Is that cool or what? Yes. And so if you feel led um, or prompted, and if you hear my words, perhaps you would be prompted to drop a quick note in that box for him so that he can hold on to that. A blessing for his life from you for sure. And that's how we can encourage the body. So please take advantage of that. Would you pray with me as we jump right into uh, this morning's message? Lord, we thank you for your great grace. Lord, you're doing something unique and special here at Church of the Savior. And Lord, we anticipate the very best is yet to come, knowing, God, that you have lined out the future for us, Lord, and all we have to do is be obedient and follow you. So lead us forward, we pray. Holy Spirit, lead us forward. May we be your people at this time. In your name, Jesus, amen. I want to visit with you about questions on and qualities of prayer Uh, But before I do that, you know, I understand that sometimes uh, uh, the world around us can encroach and we can develop maybe a little bit of a pessimistic attitude. How many of you have ever known a pessimist? Someone once described a pessimist as someone who's always seasick on the voyage of life. Uh, There was this joke I heard. uh, Two pessimists came to church and instead of shaking hands, they just shook their heads. But let me tell you a story about a pessimistic farmer. There was a pessimistic farmer living next to a optimistic farmer. The optimistic farmer, you know, would look at the sun shining down on their crops and and get excited. This is going to be good for our crops. And then the pessimistic farmer would say, oh, no, that's going to burn up all of our corn that we got grown. Well, the optimistic farmer one day would see the rain coming down and he would say, thank God that the crops are getting watered by God himself. And the pessimistic farmer would say, well, yeah, I guess that's fine and everything, but if it doesn't stop raining, it's going to be a flood. And so one day this optimistic farmer had had enough and he says, I'm going to figure out a way to get this guy so that he won't have anything to be pessimistic about. So he took him out duck hunting. And they went out in the boat together. They're out there and, and the ducks are flying and a, a few fly over. They, they both pull up their shotguns and they drop a few right in the lake. And, uh, and then, you know, they're excited a little bit about that. The pessimistic farmer, not so much. And, and so the optimistic farmer turns to his dog and, and with an extra twinkle in his eye, he says, go get him, boy. And so the dog jumped out of the boat and ran on top of the water and retreat. this is a true story, retreat the ducks and brought the ducks back to the to the boat and then uh you know the optimistic farmer says to the pessimistic farmer he says so what do you think about that and the pessimistic farmer just sneered and he says he can't swim can he <laughs> some people right <laughs> i think in these days it's very easy to become pessimistic, and I, and I get that, okay? Some of our elected officials have let us down. Maybe some Christian leaders that you held high in regard uh, disappointed you. Maybe there are some family members who've pushed you away. Maybe you're facing financial challenges. Maybe you're facing health challenges. It's a lonely road. Or maybe you're frustrated with the education system and how, you know, your kids aren't receiving the education that you think that they ought to receive. All these are, are major issues, and maybe you're just afraid of what might be coming down the pipe. I get that. I get that. And in these days, it's very easy to become pessimistic. And for those of us paying attention to what's happening around us, uh, to what's reported to us, what's probably being perpetrated upon us, I think it is super easy to get pessimistic. And if we were talking one-on-one, I would also issue maybe my opinion that I do believe that we're living in a transitional period. Major shifts are occurring, whether we want them to occur or not. But I do believe that the onus is on us to take up the momentum of the enemy and use that to our advantage. It's interesting that the Japanese fighting art judo uh, has this element called kazushi. Kazushi is at the heart of every uh, judo throw. Kazushi is Japanese. It's uh, the word that uh, refers to the unbalancing of the opponent, meaning to uh, level them or pull them down. And judo relies on throws that can only be performed in close proximity of one's opponents. It's not a stick and move boxing game, really. And these throws can only be performed 
normally performed if the combatant is brought off balance normally by using the combatant's momentum against himself. So I believe that you can actually have the advantage even though the enemy has the momentum in this world. It's not time to retreat into our comfortable little corners where we feel safe. But I believe it's time to dogmatically work with our faith and work in our faith and not stand down. See, I don't think things will go back to the the way they were before. And for those of us who will be old enough to remember, the temptation will be to call those the good old days, right? But how can that be? How can that be true if these are the days that the Almighty prescribed for you to be alive? then that would make these the best days that you could be alive. These would be the days that you would live for. So you can say, well, oh, those are the good old days if you're willing to say in this moment, these are the best days. These are the days I was made to live for because they were designed and set aside for me to live. Amen? But if you doubt me, I get that. I understand it. But we're going to consider one ingredient that can help you adopt what I would declare as a biblically sound perspective of being somewhat optimistic in this time. If you've got your scriptures, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 or pretend to do it on your phone or whatever. Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll read from verse 10. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that, you, that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done all, to stand. Standing firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. Pray always with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. So when you read that, when you read about the armor of God, you read how we're supposed to put that on, that would make us some of the best dressed people in the world, right? The armor of God. You're decked out. You are prepared for anything. And I think that this is the first quality of prayer, that you are prepared. I think there's a calling us to be prepared people for what God's got planned and for what the enemy might try to do do to us. How foolish would it be to not suit up for the conflict that you're about to face? The reason we have these seven verses, chapter 6, 10 through 17, is so that we will successfully stand against the enemy of our soul. You need every piece of that armor. You know, we've seen it. You've seen it, I'm sure. Someone grabs one piece and another piece and then runs out onto the battlefield like everything's okay. But you're looking at them saying you're putting your own life in danger. You need every piece of the armor. But sometimes when we've acquired the armor, we've put it on, we've practiced with it, we've developed a sense of, hey, nothing can stop me. But you're not invincible, even with the armor. The armor of God is not a magical formula. Even though we don these things and we're ready for battle, we have to keep the communication lines open between us and our commanding officer. We've got the best equipment, but we've got to follow his instructions. Paul closes this section on spiritual warfare, with an admonition to pray. He lists the armor pieces. And then he finally concludes with the command that we always ought to pray on every occasion. Prayer is not listed as a weapon. Prayer, though, is not given as an attachment, an item of warfare, but really it is a weapon, defensively and offensively. Offensively. Not only does Paul close this entire section on warfare and the armor, with this theme of prayer, but really he's closing out the entire book of Ephesians with the theme of prayer. 
The book of Ephesians is an amazing book. I'd encourage you to spend some time in it. Six chapters, you won't lose by reading it. In this book, Ephesians explains many blessings to you and I that are ours for the keeping. Uh, The scripture there describes how you've been adopted. How you were predestined before the foundations of the world. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're the workmanship of Christ. You're the possession of Jesus Christ. Ephesians is really saying this is what you have in Christ and this is who you are in Christ. This is the warfare of those who belong to Christ. It's Christ-centered, but this is what you have. One commentator would say it this way. In Ephesians, you have the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the Christian. All of those things, though, tied together in prayer. So no matter the many blessings and the, and the great outfit, the armor of God that we have been given, it's all tied together in prayer. And I think it's interesting that prayer is in the context of spiritual warfare. That brings me to quality number two. It's your perspective. You have perspective. You understand that we are engaged in combat. This is how we see life. This is our paradigm. This is how we see what's going on around us. The scripture in James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. So there's conflict. There's the war. And he will flee from you. And believe you me, if you're not facing that conflict now, you will in about 10 minutes. Satan trembles though when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. So if you want to fight, and I hope you do, then you have to stand. To stand, how do you stand? You kneel, pray, as it says in Scripture, right? Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verse 1, says, Then Jesus told his disciples, then and and now, a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And I think it's interesting that Jesus' purpose for telling the parable would be put that way. He knew that spiritual warfare firsthand. He knows that soldiers get tired, they get discouraged, they get weak, and they find themselves out of breath, pressed and stressed. How many of you have ever been pressed and stressed and your conflict with the enemy over your soul? I would imagine you have. In battle with the enemy, you only have two options. You can pray or you can give up. If you don't pray, you're going to want to give up. If you feel like giving up, then you ought to pray. See, pray always. That's the solution. And I think it's easy sometimes for those of us. You know, we live in an affluent society. We have great things. Uh, uh, We have our freedoms. We have jobs. We have houses. We have cars. We got kids. Then we got some more kids. And then we got some other kids. Then we got a few more eyes kids. You know, and then we've got a nice church. We've got a great church to be a part of. But sometimes in the crisis, we depend on the physical resources before we depend upon the spiritual resources. And only when we depend on the physical resources and run those dry, then do we come to the spiritual resources that are available through our God. And only absolutely when we're in need, then do we pray. We forget, really, the outcome depends on the Lord. No matter your physical resources, it depends on him anyway. Look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31. The horse is made ready. For the day of battle. So there's the physical. But then you move on to the later part of that verse. It says, but victory rests with the Lord. So it doesn't rest with me. It doesn't rest with my physical resources. It rests with the Lord. It's it's the Lord's victory. He's the one we depend upon to win. So Paul wraps Ephesians up. In prayer, as if to say, hey, don't think because you have all these blessings and all these resources in your life and all these weapons that you don't need to depend on your commanding officer. Jesus Christ is the head of the battle. And and there needs to be this constant ongoing prayer in connection with the Lord. James Lowe said it this way. He says, the gift without the giver is bare. When someone gives you a gift, it's attached to him or her. The one who gave it to you. You appreciate that person. It's an extension of who they are. The gift itself without the giver is an empty thing. So in our relationship with God, all of the gifts, all of the blessings without being attached to the divine giver really doesn't work. It's not a magical formula. It's not, I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll put these weapons on and I'll be prepared for this and this will work out. There needs to be a constant connection in prayer. Look at verse 18 again with me. And pray in the spirit 
on all occasions. Pray always with all kinds of prayers and requests. So with this verse, I, I want to answer four questions very quickly. Number one, why should I pray? Well, we've kind of over, already covered that. And I don't think, though, we can emphasize it enough. We're in spiritual warfare. That's the context. You don these pieces of armor because life isn't a party. Life is a battle. So the context is spiritual warfare. Because there's a devil, that's a good enough reason to pray, right? As long as there's a devil breathing out accusations, seeking to attack me, seeking to attack you, trying to use the allurement of the world, I need to depend on God in prayer. And you need to depend on God in prayer. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That brings me to quality number three. You become perceptive. Understand that you are the devil's prey. That he's hot on your trail. And while you have the armor, that doesn't make you unstoppable or impenetrable. What it does do is deter the predator of your life away just a little bit, but it's really your prayer life that will guarantee your success. Think of it this way with me, if you will, for just a moment. You've got to travel from point A to point B. And along that path, the devil has set up roadblocks, snares, man traps, or woman traps, snipers, and ambushes. With the armor, with the armor, you can survive some of that. But through prayer, you become perceptive. You can shortcut the roadblocks. You can bypass the snares, and you can sidestep the man traps, and you can sneak past the snipers, and then you can get the jump on the ambush. Why? Because your commander feeds you the information you need, guides you along the path, and watches your back. Something you can't do for yourself. So you become perceptive. But without prayer, if the devil can strip you of that weapon, my friends, he knows that he can get you with one or two of those strategies. That's why prayer is offensive and defenses. And that's why prayer is absolutely necessary for your survival. So, of course, God wants more for you than just surviving. He doesn't just want you to survive. He does want you to thrive. But when it, one comes before the other, I can't thrive unless I first survive. So when we start praying, the devil moves in, and he understands. He, he says, this is interruption time. This is distraction time. This is fleshly time. This is pleasure time. Because this is the area that spells defeat for him in your life. When you pray, the devil shakes. When you pray, he realizes he's up not just against you, but he's up against the Lord himself. That brings me to quality number four. Prayer follows precedent. Jesus provides for us the greatest example in prayer. In the Gospels, you can see Jesus stealing away 19 separate times, the Son of God praying to his Father. One night, he spent the whole night in prayer before he chose his disciples. You can read about that in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus got up early one morning before the sun came up, the time most of us are asleep. But Jesus got up and prayed. You can read about that in Mark chapter 1. In John chapter 6, the time the crowd surrounded him, do you remember this? And they desired to make him their earthly king. What did Jesus do? He escaped and he went off to a lonely place and prayed to his father in heaven. Do you remember when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, right? The trial of the cross would soon be upon him. Jesus retreats with his disciples and he prays. You can read about that in Luke chapter 22. Think about it. The one without sin, the perfect one, he prayed earnestly. We who are sinners, how much more should we pray? How much more sincere should we pray in our prayers? How much more dependent upon the Father should we be? You know, John Wesley said something interesting. He says, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. So what's God trying to say to us this morning? I think he's trying to say, hey, listen, I can change the world with people who hate sin and love me. I can change the world with people who will call upon me in prayer. And this world does need the change. Amen? The world needs the Lord. Even the disciples saw this precedent being set right before their very eyes. It was the one thing 
the disciples noticed about Jesus. It was his prayer life. They said to him, teach us to pray. Interestingly, because, you know, most of them grew up praying. Most of them grew up, you know, very familiar with what this means. Yet they saw a dynamic alive and well within Jesus' life that was very different than anything else they had witnessed. And so they said, Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't say teach us to preach. They didn't say teach us to administrate. They didn't say teach us to visit or teach us to counsel. What did they say? They said teach us to pray. It's interesting to me. Leonard Ravenhill in his book Why Revival Terry says the church has many organizers but few agonizers. Many who pay but few who pray. Many resters but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising but few who are interceding. People who are not praying are playing. The secret of praying is praying in secret. A worldly Christian will stop praying and a praying Christian will stop worldliness. Tithes may build a church, but tears will give it life. That is the difference between the modern church and the early church. In the matter of effective praying, Never have so many left so much to so few. Dear ones, let us pray. So why should we pray? Because we're in spiritual warfare. Number 10, or excuse me, number two. Skipped a few. <laughs> Some of you are like, whew, thank goodness. <laughs> number two, when should I pray? Verse 18, and pray and the Spirit on all occasions. Pray always with all kinds of prayers and requests. So the Scripture admonishes us, pray always. Pray at all times. And that's a tall order, isn't it? For sure. In Paul's day, when he wrote this letter, even in Jesus' day, prayer was one of the hallmarks of Judaism. The pious Jew would pray many, many different times at many different occasions, and it was considered to be one of the virtues of anyone who loved God. And yet prayer had fallen into a degenerate state. I think there were some factors that contributed to that. Prayer had been formulized. Instead of being a free expression of whatever was on the inside of their heart, they confined it to prayer formulas. They would read memorized prayers. We've seen this before, not just then, but even now. And I think this is an important quality, quality number five. And that is, quality number five is passion. Your prayers should be passionate. There be some passion behind your prayers. Prayer back then had degenerated into something memorized or read. To the Jews, it had become formalized. They would pray three times a day in the temple and the synagogue. Uh, the pious Jew would, you know, pray, you know, they had like 19 very sacred prayers to them that they would say. So there were times and there were places. The synagogue and the temple is where they would like to pray because that was God's house. And if you wanted to talk to God, you'd go to his house. I think it's interesting and Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, you have Jesus saying, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their full reward. So we understand the synagogues. They go to the synagogue to pray, right? That would be like our church. But they went to the street corners as well. They would go to the street corners during uh, market days, and they would stand in front of everyone, and they would pray. It would be like us going down to the mall and praying in front of everyone. It would inspire someone and many people, and, you know, crowds would gather, and some would say, oh, there's a, there's a really holy person there. I want to be like that holy person. Others would mock, and they'd say, oh, that was weird, and they'd move on with their life. Beyond that, they had prayers for certain occasions. They had prayers for light, prayers for darkness. It was formalized, it was recorded, and it was memorized. And the reason they did this was because they wanted to bring every nook and cranny under submission to God. And that's good motivation. That's a good motivation to have. And I hope that's our same motivation. The problem is that it had become dead and it become institutionalized. It wasn't spontaneous and it wasn't from the heart. There was also this other misconception back then about prayer that still exists today. The longer you prayed, the better. The more flowery your prayer, the better. One rabbinic prayer had 19 adjectives thrown in front of God. And if you added a few thieves and thousand there, you'd have a good preacher prayer. You know what I mean? Kind of a joke. See, there is not something so sacred that the Satan who hates you and hates me won't invade. Prayer, communication to God, 
then was regulated to set times, places, and formulas. And so when Jesus came and when the New Testament came, they broke those molds and they broke those models in many ways. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, you see that we should always pray. This is also repeated by Paul in the scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Read with me, if you will. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. This verse touches on the sixth quality of prayer, and that is that we establish partnership. The scripture is really admonishing us to never stop praying. You should always be praying. You should have a God consciousness, right? A conscious awareness that you are always in communication with the one and only true God. And on every occasion and on every circumstance, we should, good or bad, we should be praying. Your automatic response is to include God in it. The first recourse and not the last resort is to talk to your heavenly father who cares so much for you. Never stop praying. Now I recall back in eighth and ninth grade, I had established this habit of going to a a prayer closet. Sometimes that would just be a room. Sometimes that would actually be a closet. And I had established this habit, not every day, but almost every day, I I would pray for 30 to 40 minutes. And I would just pray and I would would travail sometimes. I I would just pray the Lord. I had great refreshing moments in my private time with God in prayer. And I remember we had been on vacation visiting my cousins up in Long Island. And I had not participated in that time of prayer with the Lord. And so I asked my aunt if there was a room where I could privately pray. I could, you know, establish that for just 30 or 40 minutes and just, and just pray to the Lord and have that one-on-one time with him. And she said, yes, and I got a room. And I went up there and I prayed and I enjoyed myself and I, I, I met with the Lord. It was, it was glorious. I don't know how else to explain it. I loved those moments with God. But then as I was opening the door to go back downstairs, I, I heard God speak to my voice, don't leave me here. This doesn't have to end. And I even think today that we can box God in. Don't don't box God in in your own life. Don't don't try to regulate him in a way that's unnatural, ungodly. Don't relegate him to a prayer closet. Don't relegate him to a, a moment. Don't relegate him to a script. He wants to be so very close to you. He wants to be the closest partner you have in this life and in this world. You can include him at every level and at every moment in your life. And if you leave him in the closet, then you leave out your closest partner. The one who wants to partner more with you than than you with him. So the third question I have to ask is, how should I pray? Well, this verse answers this question as well. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Pray always with all kinds of prayers and requests. Wow, with all kinds of prayers and requests. Requests would be better translated supplication in this moment, which means strongly crying out to God. Out of the depth of your heart, You should cry out to God. You should make supplication. Not a popular word, not a word we use very often, but we should make deep cries from our heart out to God. The first word is kind of an umbrella word. It's it's prayer. It's all kinds. Intercession, praise, worship, thanksgiving. But notice in that verse, in the spirit, your mind, your will, your thoughts, your requests should be in line with the spirit of God. Some say this means praying in tongues, and I believe in that. I practice that. Uh, I, I think we should all practice that. But the idea in this context is that your mind has been brought in line with the will of the Holy Spirit. And we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus through the Holy Spirit or in the Spirit, knowing his mind, knowing his will. And so here's quality number seven, that your prayer would be powerful. It should be powerful. The only power Only in the power of the Spirit, only in the power of the Holy Spirit can we really pray in the will of God. Romans chapter 8 verses 26 and 27 says it like this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How many of you are weak? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes I don't know what to pray for, right? 
Sometimes you might not know what to pray for. You might start out praying, oh Lord, they need a station wagon for all their children. And then the Holy Spirit intercedes and says, no, what he really needs is a 12-passenger van. And there you go. What we have is this need to get in line with the Holy Spirit, to be in unity with him. So what's the best way to get the mind of the Spirit? Well, it's through the acquiring of the knowledge of the Word of God because the Scripture is God-breathed. Every year I've been here, Pastor Steve has admonished us to read the Bible, to get on a reading plan, to read through the Scriptures. Try to do that once a year. By doing that, you will automatically line up with the principles and, and, and the thoughts that God thinks, and you will find yourself in unity with the Spirit through the Scripture. The more you know the Bible, the more you know God's principles, you will be praying according to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, And pray in the Spirit. On all occasions, pray always with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert. Be alert. I think you could translate that, if you wanted, with your eyes open. You've got to have your eyes open. When you are alert through prayer, it's as though All your senses are activated and then some that you don't even know you have. And you're able to understand the world the way God understands the world in a manner that will save you heartache and will allow you to be such a useful servant to him. Through prayer, we have that available. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 38. Then Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And so there's this element of being alert. There's this element of being watchful physically and spiritually. If you were to do a study on watch and pray in the scriptures, you'd see that it bubbles up all over the place. The Bible talks about it all the time. It talks about watching. It talks about praying. There's a connection between the two. There's an alertness of being in prayer with God. So the best way to stand on guard in temptation, I hope you understand what I'm saying, is to be in prayer. Prayer will keep you on your toes. Satan is always looking to throw a fiery dart at you. You will have the agility to move out of the way if you are in prayer. You will have the agility to step to the side when that fiery dart comes your direction that you've been forewarned about by the devil, excuse me, by the the Lord. Remember Nehemiah, when he was building or rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The enemies had surrounded him. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 9, he says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. He's saying we got ready for those enemies. They were coming in. We prayed and we were on lookout. How many of you understand, believe, or see in your own life that God's calling you to build some things up? Build the walls of protection around your home, around your family, around those that you care about. There is an effort by the enemy to stop you from doing that. You will have to be on high alert. And through prayer, you can have that additional alertness that is not caffeinated. It's true to the core of who God has made you to be. And you will see things and understand things that you didn't see and understand before. Look at quality number eight. Prayer is persistent persistent. That's not a popular word. You don't see that tattooed on people's arms very much, do you? Persistent. But it's a good word. It's a strong word. It's a word that should describe our prayer life. If you look with me at Luke chapter 11 verse 1, it says, once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. It gets a little more exciting in verse 5. Jesus went on. Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. And you say to him, 
a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed, and I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for the friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Oh, isn't that good? It gets even better. Verse 9, and so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. So I don't think that means that we twist God's arm or that we think we can twist God's arm. I think when God says this isn't for you, he's not going to still give it to you. It's not like, okay, this is going to hurt you, but I'm going to give you this anyway, right? When my kid asks for a knife, well, let's not go down that road. (laughs) I wonder if sometimes we stop short of persevering in prayer. And when God was about to reward our persistence, we just stepped back and we We didn't go that final inch. Someone once said, keep praying until the Spirit stops you or until God answers you. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. See, there's some motivation there. If you're fervent, if you put your heart into it, God will honor that. He will do something. The righteous man avails much. There will be something that happens on the other side of your prayer. And so no matter how my words fail to describe that thing that might happen on the back end of your prayer, please pray. Pray fervently. Stick with it. Adhere to it like glue. Keep on praying. Put your heart into it. Don't just offer up a flippant prayer and go, okay, God, and walk away almost fatalistically. Put your whole self into it. Be fervent. Feel it. And put yourself out there. Thomas Brooks says, cold prayers always freeze before they get to heaven. That's true. It's the fervent prayers of a righteous man. And number four, for whom should I pray? Ephesians chapter 6, look with me at verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. For this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak... Words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. When Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't say, pray this formula. He didn't say that. But he did say, pray to our Father. He says, our Father who art in heaven, our Father. See, you're attached to one amazingly large family, a huge family. You're not the only one who's got needs in the family. Jesus came to take the I, me, and my out of our vocabulary. And he would like to replace it with us, our, and ours. He taught us to pray as a part of the family, which brings us to quality number nine, that your prayer would be purposeful. This is intercession. Intercession. Intercession is hard. Interceding for people is hard. Praise and worship, let's just be honest, that's fun, right? Petitioning for myself when I pray for myself and my needs. Oh, I've got my list. It's right there. I'm ready to go. I've got a good long list. (laughs) That's easy, right? But the real labor begins when I start praying for you. Your real labor begins when you start praying for me or for other people. That's when the work really gets tough. It's purposeful. If you focus on the needs of other people and you become purposeful, I believe you will experience a lift in your faith as you practice your faith. There's an amazing shift that does occur as I take my gaze off of myself, and I refocus it on somebody else. The supernatural comes into play, and I don't even understand exactly, but I'm describing to you a principle that it will become even more purposeful as you pray. If you focus on the needs of other people, you'll experience that boost, and you'll go from self-centered living to God-centered living. And as I close, I want to pick up 
with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, you can turn there if you like. After Matthew describes the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, better known as Palm Sunday, Matthew describes how Jesus drops the hammer on some temple corruption, he heals a bunch of people, and he angers the religious leaders of his day. And I, I kind of like that. I think that's great stuff. Would have liked to have been there for that, really. And Matthew chapter 21 also records that when Jesus went back to Bethany from uh, where they had been commuting uh, to Jerusalem, for the Passover festival, there is this scripture in verse 18. It says, Matthew, excuse me, early in the morning, this is Jesus, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And I think this is an important verse because it provides the background for the next four verses. You might be thinking the same thought that I would be thinking. How can hunger be the background and, and not the foreground? How can it be secondary and not primary? I mean, who in the world forgot to feed Jesus, Right? Why is he hungry anyway? And if I'm thinking about it, you know, when I'm hungry, it's about the only thing I can think about. But for Jesus, it's secondary. It's not primary. And this is my observation, that what we deem primary is normally secondary to God. It's usually not the first thing. It's usually the second thing. See, he was hungry physically, but more important than that, he was hungry relationally. Jesus was hungry, and he still is for people who really want to enter in to an authentic and prayerful relationship with him. So let me ask you this. Have you ever seen someone do something that seemed so out of character that it made you stop and do a double take? Well, this is one of those moments with Jesus. And this is what he does. Look at verse 19. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Seems a little out of character for Jesus, doesn't it, right? We know he's hungry, but now it just seems like he's hangry, right? But let's give Jesus a little more credit, right? He's not just being destructive. We, we can assume that he's being instructive here in this moment. Let's think about that tree for just a moment, right? That precocious show of foliage promised, but it did not provide. It advertised, I'm healthy. I've got what you want, right? But there was no fruit. There was no fruit available. There was nothing there to deliver to the passerby who was looking for the fruit. See, our job in this life, I, I believe, is, is not to show, but it really is to grow. Jesus put a higher priority on the fruit and, and not the leaves. So how can we grow the fruit that he wants? I think, number one, we can recognize God. If we recognize God and we repent, we walk away from that which we were involved in, we say, God, I want to recognize you here, and I want to recognize you in this other area of my life. I, I want you to have full freedom in my life. I recognize you, God. I'm not pretending you don't exist. I recognize you. And then you reprioritize. You say, less leaves and more fruit, God. I, I, I've tried to look good, and for those of us who've been in the church most of our lives, or all of our lives, you, you, you understand the game. I want to look good. I want to, I want to look good to everybody else. And, and sadly, that's that's what we do many times, but to reprioritize and say, you know what, this isn't so important. It's the fruit that I need to grow that's the most important. Then finally, we should rely on the Holy Spirit so that we can grow the fruit of the Spirit. When you look at the fruit of the Spirit, it's delicious, it's good looking, it's what everybody wants, but I can't grow it on my own. I need the Holy Spirit to help me grow that fruit. So we rely on the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 20. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did that fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And see, to be amazed by Jesus' power, I believe, is important. I do think our pride prevents Jesus' power from producing what could be argued as the first and necessary effect in our life, which is astonishment. When we have that epiphany or, or that light bulb moment and we quickly exclaim, oh, he's God, Oh, he's creator, and, and I want him to be my savior. Then we've recognized his great power. We're in astonishment. But without astonishment, without wonder, and without amazement, we can easily convince ourselves that we're God's equal or that he needs to work a little harder to prove his power to us. And that's unfortunate. I think we downplay many times so that we can horseplay, right? But soon comes doomsday. God will eventually reveal his great power. But wouldn't it be 
wise to humble ourselves in the here and now rather than give an account later, as scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Wouldn't it be nice to have his partnership of power now? It can be yours. It can be yours. So we get it now. The fig tree is not a horticultural lesson. And leading up to these next two verses, Jesus gave clues to some additional insights. But now he surprises both his original disciples and I think us, his modern day disciples, when he delivers the punchline in verse 21 and 22. Read with me. It says, Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. It's amazing, isn't it? Worship team, will you please come? This is the 10th and the last quality of prayer. It's practical. Practical faith is necessary. It's a necessary ingredient in prayer. Doubt in this verse describes hesitation to trust God, right? But practicing practical faith means just doing two things, putting your confidence in God's power. I'm not putting my confidence in my power or somebody else's power. I'm putting my confidence in God's power. That's where I emphasize it. And then number two, putting confidence in his willingness to respond. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how much he really wants to respond to your desires and needs? I think he does. If you really know the God and the God of the Bible and the Holy Spirit that he sent, he wants you to respond. He wants you to move in his direction and put your trust in him so that you say he's willing to respond and he will respond. So developing that confidence in God does it doesn't involve testing God, but it does involve trusting God while declaring his power and reaffirming his desire to respond to you favorably. With practical faith, anything is absolutely possible in this world. Take it to the bank, my friends. Take it to the bank. As I close, I want to share with you on February 22nd, Excuse me, February 2nd. My father-in-law um, had to go to the doctor, uh, to the ER. He had pain in his chest. And they took an x-ray and they found um, a mass. And... Uh, it was very easily declared, oh, this, this looks cancerous. And he went for other follow-up appointments. And we were left with this impression that, yeah, this is, this is not looking good. Uh, we cried a little bit or cried a lot. <clears throat> my father-in-law has become one of my best friends took us some years but we got there and that diagnosis was, was it was bad right we we didn't know what to do but pray our physical resources I've talked about this already were our go-to move where it should have been God first for some of us I don't doubt that he was praying immediately. And so we've had this up and down road over the last uh, few weeks and then um, we braced for the last doctor's appointment which would determine uh, the course of treatment. And um, he went in on Wednesday. I even brought this prayer request to the staff prayer meeting on Tuesday and I said, I've, we just, I would ask you to pray about this. And we prayed. So many people were praying. Waited all day. And then uh, we got the call that in this doctor's appointment, they couldn't find the mass. 
And when you think of uh, the moment, I mean, I still think about it. It was the same cancer that his father had died from. And I think it's really neat that, that David can even say, I, I, I sensed the moment I was healed. God can do immeasurably more than we can think or ask. And we can say to things that stand in the way, whether that be cancer or, or something else, you can say to that mountain, be gone, it'll be gone. You can do greater works through prayer, not through your own armor or your ability to wield the sword, but through prayer. That's where our power is. Would you stand with me where you are? Would you take in one hand that which you know you need a miracle for and wrap your hand tightly around it? You hold on to that for just a second. If there are some other secondary needs in your life, I, I grab those up with your, your other hand. And as you hold these, hold these before the Lord and let's pray over them even now. I pray, Lord, that you would release the gift of faith. That, Lord, we would look upon these items and these things and these issues, Lord, whether they be health, physical, financial, whatever they might be, psychological, emotional even, Lord. We look upon these things and we say, Lord, these are mountains in our life, but through you and through you alone, we express our trust. And, Lord, we give these to you right now in your name, Jesus, through this prayer. Amen. When you say amen, release. Give those over to God. In the next few moments, we're going to enter into some more worship. And I would encourage you to find a place at the altar to receive and to bask in what God's doing in your life. To ask him to build even more momentum in your heart. Don't let this moment pass you by. Let's worship the Lord.
Whatever you want
know, before we close in prayer, it was brought to our attention uh, through a trusted voice in our church that someone might have congestive heart issues. If you have congestive heart issues and you'd like prayer, the prayer of faith to be prayed over you and with you, uh, please meet us down here to my left and to your right and we will pray for you. God's doing something unique and amazing here with us. We should be careful not to underappreciate his presence and that which he's speaking to your heart now. I believe the Lord wants to stir up the gift of faith on the inside of you. There are things for you to do miracles that God would like to perform through your life that might not ever happen unless you're open and available through through prayer to him. You most certainly will not miss out by checking in with him every moment on every occasion. You will successfully walk and run and not grow weary. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your great gift, your great love. We thank you for extending yourself so humbly to us in relationship that we mere humans might have a constant ongoing conversation with you. That, Lord, it would be intimate and would be transparent that it would be spontaneous and that Lord you would bless your people in these upcoming days and these upcoming hours even whatever shift you're doing and whatever shift you're making on the inside of us we say yes Lord we surrender we have our traditions in some ways Lord we have a religion but break that off of us we pray in your name Jesus Might we step into this new season? Might we not become an old wineskin? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.